A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 23, starting with verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading, a reading from the letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, starting with verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The word of the Lord. The Gospel according to St. Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. 
Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The gospel of the Lord. It's good to be with you all this morning. Thankful um, for a little change of pace from ordinary time, which is wonderful and a wonderful time. But whenever we're able to celebrate these seasons in the church calendar, I, I just think the the story comes alive in a little different way, in a unique way. Um, and uh, as we're starting new things with processional cross and elements like that, some of these things are new to us and it'll take us, it'll be kind of like clothes we're trying to see if fit, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm thankful for it and I think it's beautiful. So thank you for everybody that participated and is participating this morning. Um, so today is Christ the King Sunday, which marks the very end of the church year. Today we acknowledge the reality that Christ is the true King of the world. Now, we need to be honest that in our world, the idea of kingship is a weird one. It's often looked upon with suspicion. Uh, to many of us, the idea of kingship reeks of domination, oppression, an overall problematic power dynamic, right? We're continuing today to come to grips with the failures of colonialism, the ways in which certain forms of Christianity have actually participated in the failures of colonialism. So what, what do we mean when we proclaim Christ is king? Can't we just call something else? <laughs> Can't Christ just be our friend or our guide or our healer? And of course, Christ is all of those things, but he's also our king. The Feast of Christ the King was first established in the Roman Catholic Church in 1925, which wasn't that long ago. And then it was adopted by Protestant communities who observed the lectionary soon after that. So this makes this date, this particular feast, one of the really late additions to the calendar. 1925 wasn't really that long ago. A lot of our feast dates that we celebrate go back millennia sometimes, right? Um, in 1925, the world was an interesting place. Mussolini was in the middle of his reign in Italy. A young Adolf Hitler was causing a stir with his recently released Mein Kampf. And the beginnings of the Great Depression and the cracks in the economic system were beginning to emerge. It was in such a world that the church believed we needed to end our year, end the church year, remembering that Christ is Lord. Let me clarify that. We're ending the church year. So our calendar, we, we end the year in December, at the end of December, and then we start in January. But in the church calendar, um, the thing, things are a little different. A new year actually begins next week with the beginning of Advent. That's the first season in the church calendar. So today, we're ending our year remembering that Christ is King. The contemporary theologian, who is also known as the cussing theologian, Stanley Hauerwas is quoted as saying, Jesus is Lord and everything else is BS. He didn't say BS, but I'm not a cussing pastor, so I will leave it at that. But, it, but it's true, the sentiment remains the same, that Jesus is Lord, nothing else really matters. 
As we acknowledge the true kingship of God, what it also calls us to do is recognize the emptiness and brokenness and even sinfulness of the other kinds of leadership in our world, which often characterize this world. So our Jeremiah reading begins with, Woe to the false shepherds, the one who destroy and scatter instead of healing and gathering. Now, what does Jeremiah mean by these false shepherds? Well, he probably means Judah's rulers, um, not least the most recent king, Zedekiah. But we know for sure that the last four rulers in Judah were all bad shepherds. They were all known for scattering the sheep. The image of shepherd is interesting in the Old Testament. It's the image of one who cares for his people. But leader as shepherd imagery is unique to Judaism and to Christianity. We don't see it in other religions, other ancient religions. We today are used to this imagery. We know Psalm 23, which is often read at funerals. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We understand this idea of shepherd and leadership. And maybe you've been familiar with all the pictures of Jesus as the shepherd who guides the sheep um, last week in confirmation, or two weeks ago <laughs> at confirmation. Uh, Bishop Mike was here and he had his shepherd staff. And my daughter Lucy was so fascinated. What is that for? Of course, we do all kinds of things when the bishop's here for confirmation. He's got a funny hat that he wears and all that kind of stuff. So there's symbolism to all of it. But, but the staff was interesting. And so what he, what he showed my daughter Lucy is that the staff really represents the shepherd. And he said, you know what shepherds do with the sheep? And then he took his staff and put it around my daughter's neck and started pulling her towards him. But that's the idea is, is the Lord is our shepherd, the one who guides, who leads us, who carries us from danger. But this is unique to Christianity, this picture. And if you think about it, it's kind of a weird picture for leadership in our world today. Like, it definitely doesn't seem like a strong, dominant picture like many of the images of kings of the ancient world or of the high-powered CEOs and moguls of today. Shepherd's a different kind of thing. But mostly due to the story of King David Israel understands their leaders, their kings and priests, to be shepherds. But Jeremiah says that the shepherds have failed. They've driven the sheep away and they've not cared for them. So the Lord says, I will gather myself, the remnant of my flock, out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Now, if you've been around the Bible very often, you might know this phrase, fruitful and multiply. Is God's original call to human beings. So the shepherds, what they've done, these false shepherds, these broken shepherds, is they've scattered the flock and they've not allowed them to be who God has called them to be. They've not allowed them to live their creational calling. They can't live out God's dream for them because the false shepherds are keeping them from doing the work of creation. So the Lord says he's going to raise up for his people a righteous branch who will deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness. And he says this branch will be for David. So Christians throughout history have seen this and have seen the prophecy of David, have seen Jesus in the line of David, and have said what this passage is talking about is Jesus, the one who is coming. We see passages like this all throughout the, prof the prophets. Promises God will one day bring justice. God will one day make things right. God alone will be our king and people will obey the law, but it will come from their hearts. Gentiles will no longer be the oppressors of God's people. They'll be the people who come to Jerusalem, come to the temple to worship the one true God. 
And this was the expectation of the crowds that surrounded Jesus during his ministry in the first century. They longed for this paradise, this day when everything was put right. But what was confusing is Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and he's talking about his suffering and death. Wait just a minute. We're looking for paradise. We're looking for everything restored. We're looking for true justice and the true king. And you're talking about suffering and death. What does that mean? Jesus described the kingdom as a mustard seed. Scott McKnight says, as a seed dies and then mysteriously grows into a large plant, so Jesus knew that he too must die. But it was his body, like that of the mustard seed, that would die, germinate in resurrection, and soon explode into worldwide growth. So the people of the first century expected the full plant, (laughs) but Jesus is preaching the seed. This is what made it so difficult, and this is what makes the kingdom of God so difficult for us to grasp today. One day we will see paradise. One day we will see the kingdom in fullness. But in Jesus and in those who follow him, the new world, that new paradise, that new reality is being planted here and now by how we live today. When we think about leadership today, we're often drawn to the grand vision. Someone who will fix it who will put it all back together. We want paradise. Likewise, we want to be the fix-it leaders, the ones who bring about paradise. We want to be leaders and to be people who get things done. But the Christian life is much more about paradox than about paradise. We still anticipate paradise, but we know it's only realized in everyday acts of self-giving love. As parents, we learn this as time goes on, and I have a lot more learning to do, but we can't make everything perfect for our kids. We can't fix everything and make everything right and put them in the perfect trajectory to where they have no issues and no problems. We can show up for them. We can love them each and every day, even imperfectly. We can live mustard seed lives. As leaders at work, We're not called to dominate or climb over others, get our way to the top, but to steward those whom we lead. The problem with false shepherds is they lack care and they drive the sheep away. But the leadership of Christ the King is a leadership of gathering and nurturing and calling people into who they were created to be. If we see Jesus' kingship as different from the kingship of the world, we might be thrown off by the beginning of our Colossians reading. Because verse 11 is all about power. Verse 11 says, May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. Okay, that's three words for like power and strength. But notice what power is for. Power is not bad. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But what the power is for, it produces patience and endurance. Paul encourages the suffering church in Colossae to hold on to stay true to their inheritance. Now, we've talked about the word inheritance in the Bible before, but the inheritance of God's people is the kingdom of God, God's new world, which is has broken into this present world through the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, it's an inheritance God's people have now. We have it now. 
But because of G- and because of Jesus, the great gulf of sin and death has been crossed. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transfer, transformed, excuse me, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God's new world has been inaugurated in Jesus. So this is important. When we talk about the kingship of Christ, God's kingdom is not just one of many kingdoms jockeying for position. That's what we see in our world today. We see two political parties in our country that clash with each other. We see nations that are trying to jockey for who's the most powerful nation in the world. But God's kingdom is not one of those jockeying for position. The kingdom of God is different in that in its longevity, so it will last forever, and its substance. It's made up of different stuff than the kingdoms of the world. This power that Paul speaks of is available to help form and shape our lives into the pattern which God has for us. But this involves a whole new identity. When we choose Christ, when we live into resurrection, it means we reject the previous life, the previous world, and we choose something else. Simon Chan writes, salvation is transference from one kingdom to another. The kingdom of God, however, is not an abstract rule or dominion. Nor is it something merely internal. Rather, God's kingdom is always manifested in concrete community. This implies that conversion cannot be thought of simply as a change of heart. It's a change of citizenship. So when we come to Christ, we become citizens of a new country. Eugene Peterson calls it um, the country, the resurrection country is what he calls it that we're part of this resurrection country, that we are a garden of resurrection or citizens of resurrection in a country of death. And then the passage goes on um, into a description of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. That word image is important from Genesis. In the very beginning, human beings were created in the image of God. But because of sin, that image has been broken. So we're broken images, or you might say broken icons is another way to describe it. We often fail to reflect God's image. We go against God's intention. But rather than giving up on us, God sends his son, the true image of the invisible God. So in Jeremiah, the new shepherd was to restore the creational call to be fruitful and multiply. And here in Colossians, we see Jesus has done that. He is the new image. He has restored the creational call to bear God's image. All the things that human beings were called to be at creation and have failed to be have been restored in Jesus. Jesus embodies a new and full humanity. He leads us in what it means to be human. Now, at this time, the word image had another important meaning. So there were images of Caesar everywhere in the Roman Empire. They're in people's homes, they're in the public square, they're in the bathhouses, and all of the images had the same theme. The idea was that Caesar is the Lord of the world, that he is the Prince of Peace and Lord of Lords. Yes, those are the real words they used for Caesar, the emperor at that time. He is the savior of the world. So Roman propaganda was everywhere, and his image was on the coins. It was everywhere. Another part of propaganda, well, in this, in the midst of this world, where Caesar's image is everywhere. Paul says, no, there's actually a new and true image. And he is leads us into the true humanity. The same propaganda also described the empire 
the Roman Empire, as a body. The emperor was the head of the body, and then in the it was called the paterfamilias. In the family, the father was like a little emperor over his house, <laughs> and then the the um, his wife was like the uh, little emperor over the children. And so you see kind of how that was uh, staggered in that kind of way. But Paul says, no, no, there's a new body and a new head. You're not a citizen of that world in the same way anymore. You, there is a new body and a new head. The risen Christ is the head of the body. It is Jesus, not the emperor, who leads you and guides you. Caesar's empire is built on violence, but Jesus' kingdom is built on self-sacrificial love. They're radically different. Paul goes on to say he's the firstborn from among the dead. This means that there is more coming. There will be a future resurrection when all of God's people will rise. Jesus is the one in whom God was pleased to have his fullness dwell. He's not the one who dominates, but the one who reconciles all things. Now, all of this will naturally lead us, I think, to ask ourselves, okay, that's great for the first century in the Roman Empire, but what propaganda do we believe today? What is your propaganda of choice? We may not have an emperor who we worship as God, But there are some implicit, all-encompassing stories in our world which attempt to shape everything that we do. For some, it is a specific belief about our value. I'm valuable because X, Y, and Z. Or the nature of the good life. Well, if I could just achieve this, then I'll be happy. We know that we're believing propaganda when the things that don't look like Jesus begin to drive us. They give us an adrenaline rush when we have them and pains when we lack them. These are subtle things. It may be materialism, the pursuit of the American dream. It may be a political ideology. But here's the good news and the truth. None of our ideologies, no matter how good they appear, has forgiven us. None of our cultural ideologies has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It may seem like they run the world right now, that that's the way things get done, that's the way the world happens, that's the way the world holds together, but they don't. There's a better king. When all of that stuff proves hollow, God stays true. Luke writes his entire gospel as a royal proclamation wanting us to know there's a new king, a new chief, and a new lord of lords. This new king has revealed all other kings to be false, to be a parody. Caesar was the emperor of the day, and emperor just literally means king of kings or chief of chiefs. The problem is the king, the new king, Jesus, looks nothing like the other kings and authorities of the world. One of the main reasons is this king refuses to rule through violence or coercion. This plays itself out on the cross as Jesus is crucified between two violent revolutionaries. So the two guys, the two criminals on either side of him, are being crucified because they were revolting against the empire. And that's the same punishment that Jesus is given because they say he's a revolutionary, but he's not violent. So they don't really know what to do with him or what category to put him in. From the cross, Jesus does something completely unexpected. From the cross, Jesus forgives those who are killing him. 
when he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is a uniquely Christian thing. It's radical, and it makes no sense. I'm not saying other religions don't have deep forgiveness. Don't hear that at all. But I'm saying the way that this plays itself out has a uniquely Christian shape to it. This is the kind of ridiculous forgiveness that makes the family of victims killed at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston to declare to the killer's face that they forgive him. This is the kind of ridiculous forgiveness that leads the Amish families of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, many of whom lost loved ones as they were gunned down in a violent shooting, to not only forgive the shooter who killed himself, but to pay for the college tuition of his children. This makes no sense in the world of Pilate, in the world of Herod, in the world of Caesar. In our world today, this kingdom is so different. A kingdom built on forgiveness doesn't look like any kind of leadership that any of the groups in their world or in our world were expecting. And yet notice Luke's focus. Everything in this passage, he didn't have to do it this way, but everything in this passage has a kingly element to it. So everything points to Jesus kind of as a king. You know about the crown of thorns, you know about some of those kind of other elements. But on the cross here, Jesus is hailed as king. And notice it's like three different times that they say, you're the king of the Jews, you should save yourself but they do so in mockery. He, even in this story, has a royal cupbearer coming to him to bring him wine on his throne, which is the cross, but it's sour wine, the drink of the poor. The Roman soldiers are calling him the king of the Jews, but their tone is mocking, not declarative. So they say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The inscription above his head reads, King of the Jews. He has this royal placard announcing him as the true chief, but it's actually smelling out his criminal charge. This taunting of Jesus, insisting that Jesus is not really King of the Jews because he's suffered this, this fate, this is central to Luke's agenda in writing the gospel. Jesus is a different kind of king, and he's bringing about a different kind of kingdom. N.T. Wright says, he has celebrated with the wrong people, offered peace and hope to the wrong people, and warned the wrong people of God's coming judgment. Now he is hailed as king at last, but in mockery. By the world's standards, Jesus doesn't look powerful. He doesn't look anything like a king in a worldly sense. Jesus' authority is altogether different. His power is not coercion or domination or domination or oppression, but forgiveness and reconciliation and healing. And none of that stuff, forgiveness, reconciliation, healing, none of that looks like power in our world. Jesus shows the world what power looks like in God. The way Christ the King conquers the world is by dying under its violence. Now, in the ancient times, many revolutionaries, what they do is they would use their last words to curse their torturers. It was like a way of kind of getting in a last stab at them to show them that you're brave and that you're strong at the end. This was a sign of strength, but Jesus doesn't respond with cursing. He responds with forgiveness, and this forgiveness does something. Forgiveness is the way of God's new world. That's why in John 20, after he rises from the dead, you notice Jesus sends his disciples, but he sends them to do a particular thing, to forgive. If you read it, it looks kind of strange, because he's like, go and forgive people's sins. 
Like, oh, that's our mission? Forgiveness? Because this kingdom is built on forgiveness. The good news of Jesus is that sinners are being brought home. As Jeremiah would say, the sheep that are scattered are being gathered together. Empires are built on vengeance and selfishness. Christ's kingdom is built on forgiveness and self-giving love. The two thieves on the cross illustrate to us how our world responds to forgiveness and true love. One criminal joins the empire, joins the derision of the empire. Are you not the Messiah? Save us. This criminal is so twisted up in the empire's lies about what defines success and power. He can't see beyond that. But the other one recognizes that Jesus is king. We're not told that he knows very much. He doesn't have his theology ducks all in a row. We don't see anything about that. All he recognizes is that Jesus is good and undeserving of death and that he himself is a sinner. And he cries out for Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. And then this story, this reading ends in a profound way. The ultimate royal proclamation from Jesus, the new king. He promises this man a place in paradise. This is a proclamation of forgiveness. This man sees the paradox in Jesus and he is given paradise. Now notice this is such a sign of strength from Jesus. This is not a sign of codependency. Jesus doesn't die on the cross because he's like, oh, I guess this is what I have to do and in this kind of passive way. He's not a victim or a doormat. Fleming Rutledge says, these are not the actions of a victim. They are the actions of a commanding figure who has power to direct the future of human beings. Not everyone in our world will respond to forgiveness, to the way of Jesus. Many of us and many in our world are still too caught up in the empire's false stories. We're looking for a different kind of king, one who conquers and who gets things done and who dominates. But there are those who, as they see the light of Christ shining in our lives, in the lives of his followers, will respond. And Christ is ready to welcome each one into his kingdom with open arms. On this Christ the King Sunday, we publicly declare and remember the kingship of Christ. Many of us have spent our lives under the regime of false kings. The stories that seek to define us and proclaim themselves as the final answer to the world's questions. We hear today the proclamation of woe to them because they are scattering and destroying stories. We are compelled to ask what kind of propaganda we believe in our lives. We talked earlier about the overarching messages we often believe about our world, about the good life, our hopes and anxieties, and how they might speak to that. But some of this propaganda, and hear this, some of this propaganda comes from more localized sources. Some of us have received messages in our lives from our parents, from our loved ones, which we now believe about ourselves. We have these tapes that play in our head, the false messages about who we are or whose we are. We're told we're not smart enough or pretty enough or we'll never measure up or we're only as good as what we do or how we're perceived or how we behave. These two are lies. The truth is God loves you. 
You are made in his image. He has rescued you from the false stories, the false images, the propaganda, and the violence of the world. And he has brought you into a new kingdom. In his last words before his death, Jesus does not curse his oppressors, but forgives them. The question for us today is the same question faced by the two thieves. How will we respond to this new kingdom? Are we too entwined with the lives of the empire? Or are we able only by God's grace and without fully knowing what we're doing to see the paradox in Jesus? May we lay aside all of our allegiances. May we continue to grow in the trust of the true king. May we recognize the false stories, listen for the better story, and live out the forgiveness and love of the kingdom of Christ and our our Lord. Amen.